Okay, take your Bible to turn to Second John. When you, while you do that, let me let me share with you. Each each night we meet, I have several quotes on different points that I'm sharing with you uh, as we go through this. It's my intent, particularly as we're dealing with Mormonism, to quote either a prophet or a major Mormon theologian. This becomes very important because even please understand as we talked remember last week we talked about how Mormonism's God is an, is an evolving God that means he's always changing Mormon doctrine is a much the same kind of animal uh, we talked last week about the priesthood and how remember how they would talk about the people of color the African Americans they were they carried the mark of Cain on them and they couldn't carry the priesthood and all these things but that's changed and you know things change as you go through these things so um, Please understand that that one of the intents of Mormonism in the last 10 years has been to mainstream it. To make it be a mainstream Christian faith. Uh, it does not fit in any sense of the in any sense of the word, but I guarantee you, especially because we have this political season coming on, and the major conservative candidate is is a is of the Mormon faith, that you're going to have uh, a lot of things that are going to be said about the propaganda is going to be to mainstream it. Oh, you know, uh, Mormonism is just as Christian as any other as any other faith, and you'll have people that will try to put that forth. And and uh, as I shared last week that many of the people who go to the Mormon church don't know a lot of things we even we even shared last week uh, which is unfortunate but I know it's also true that many people who go to Baptist church don't know as much about the Bible as they need to know so I guess that's that's true across the board um, but so tonight what I want to do is deal with Mormonism and their their view of who Jesus Christ is uh, I think it can be said that of any group, the first question, you know, you don't have to know everything about any every group that's out there. The first question I think you'd ask, so you don't have to study in depth everything, is ask them. Ask them about Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? And remember we talked about this before. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about two things you're looking for. Two things you're looking for when you ask a group about Jesus, okay? The first thing you're asking, you're, you're looking for is, what do they believe about who Jesus is? What's the Bible say about who Jesus is? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is very God. He is 100% God, 100% man. We have the incarnation, which is a part of that. We have the virgin birth, which is a part of that. So the one question when you say, tell me about Jesus, ask them, what do they believe about him? Some, some, some faiths believe he's just another prophet, just like many prophets and stuff. He's an exalted man. Some people would say he has a Christ consciousness within him and stuff. Some think he just, Mormonism would, would actually teach that, that uh, well, we'll talk about what Mormons teach. But, so, uh, uh, so you have to ask, who is he? That's the first part of the gospel. Because of God, remember, there's only one gospel. And the gospel is around who Jesus, about Jesus. Who is he? The second thing you must ask is, what did he do? Because the second part of the gospel is what Jesus accomplished for us. Who he is and what he accomplished. And you can know whether or not a group is an orthodox Christian group, that is, a biblical Christian group, by answering those two questions. And remember what the Bible teaches, that that it's upon that foundation that everything else is built. And if that foundation is not laid properly, it doesn't matter what else you lay upon top of it, everything else is going to crumble. So it's, it's, it really is simple. You're dealing with somebody maybe of a faith you've never heard of. or is that, Ask them that question. What do you all believe about Jesus? Who is he? And what did Jesus accomplish that makes him unique from any other man that ever walked on the face of the earth? Ask those questions, and you'll know pretty pretty quickly 
about about what they what they teach about Jesus. Now, some of the more developed religions like Mormonism, they know they know how to play the word game today. So I would say to you that you could almost ask those questions to one of those nice Mormon missionaries that come up to you, and he will give you the answers that you want to hear. And you might walk away saying, well, I don't see that big a difference between you know, what my church teaches about Jesus and what the Mormons see. That nice Mormon missionary, he told me, you know what always gets me with the Mormon missionary, just to throw this out there. You have this guy that's 18 years old, he's got a, a, a name tag on that says Elder so-and-so. I'm thinking, Elder of who? So, never mind. You all didn't get it. Okay? So, verbiage becomes very important today. Because they will say Jesus is their Redeemer. Oh, well, praise God, Jesus is my Redeemer too. They'll tell you Jesus is their Savior. Again, praise God, Jesus is my Savior too. If you you ask something that vague, then you're going to get what you asked for. You've got to deal, you know, again, I would say, that's why I would say with the more developed faiths that want to be accepted as a Christian faith, they've learned the verbiage. And so they will use the verbiage just the way that you will. But they don't mean the same thing that you mean when you say that. Now, uh, the question was asked when we go through this on Sunday night, can you ask questions? Yes, you can. Uh, I would ask you to sort of keep your questions in the context of the realm we're talking about, like tonight about Jesus. Uh, but, uh, and we'll talk about the variant things next week and stuff, okay? All right, so let's look at what the Bible says. John chapter, uh, excuse me, Second John. And I want you to look at verses 9 to 11. You come on Wednesday night, we'll do this, this portion more in depth. But uh, just for tonight, just, just listen to the instruction of John. He says this, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him or your household, uh, into your household or greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil. Evil deeds. That's a pretty strong statement that John gives instruction to the churches. He says, he says, if they do not have the doctrine of Christ, well, which doctrine of Christ are we talking about? Well, of course, what the scripture says and reveals about Christ. Any other doctrine of Christ is a doctrine that, does, that cannot lead to salvation. You can call a being Jesus all day long, doesn't make him Jesus. I grew up here in Arizona. In my graduating class, there were several Jesuses. Now, of course, they went by Jesus, but the same name. Okay? So, are they Jesus? Well, they are Jesus in that, in that sense, but they're not the Jesus. And you, got, you and I have to understand that, that, again, Jesus has probably been more uh, recreated more than any other individual in human history. And even some evangelicals who used to believe in the true Jesus over time have created Jesus in, in a way that's comfortable for them to, to create him. There's only one Jesus that saves. There's only one doctrine of Christ that can, that can change a person's life. That's why it's so crucial for us to know the gospel. Remember what Paul said? Isn't it interesting that Paul in Galatians said this? He said, if anyone comes to you and offers you a different gospel than that which you have received, let him be accursed or anathema or damned. That's what he says. And isn't it interesting what he says in the next verse? I love this. He said, if, if I, Paul, or an angel from heaven come on you and give you a different gospel than that which you've received, let them be accursed. Isn't it interesting that the, that the basis of Mormonism is that an angel from heaven, supposedly, came to Joseph Smith and gave him information and really gave him a new gospel. It's incredible. 
Did Paul have the foresight to know that 2,000 years ago? Or does God know how men are? Of course God knows how, how men are. So, John tells us that there's only one doctrine of Christ that saves. He tells us that unless a person has the biblical doctrine of Christ, that they cannot be saved. It's impossible. They cannot know the Father, nor can they know the Son. And then he tells us this. He says, and you are not to... Which is similar to what Paul said in Second Corinthians, you are not to join yourself with them in any real kind of union. You understand what he means by that? You're not you're not to welcome them. You're not to remember in this day in, in Second John's day when he said they didn't have hotels and stuff. When when people would come in and Bible teachers and, and itinerant preachers would come in and stuff, they would stay in people's homes. And people would take care of them. People would minister to them. And now he's saying, you don't, even, you don't do that because you will have a part in what they're doing in spreading their poison. Maxine. Did you want questions now or later? Well, when they come in your mind, I guess. Okay. I, I'm, go ahead. I'm hung up on something. Go ahead. We don't want you hung up, so let's go. <laughs> you said that people create, some people create Jesus, their own Jesus in their own mind. Right. Did you mean that they will only accept certain parts of Scripture? Or? Well, most of, it, most of it is based on at least an essence of scripture yes but but how do you know who Jesus is there's only one way you can know I mean it's not just a, like I feel like I want Jesus to be this in my life and you know it, sometimes we even do this way well who do you feel Jesus is you know and that, that can be a crazy question to ask someone. well who do you feel Jesus is? no the question is who is Jesus you got to know who Jesus is. And the Bible is God's revelation of His Son. And His Son is the revelation of the Father, according to what the Scripture says. So yes, most of it is based upon some essence of Scripture. The enemy is very good at doing that. Alright, so let's look first, before we get into some of, these, some of these quotes about Jesus, let's look at what the Bible says about Jesus, because we always need to be reminded of this, isn't that right? You've got to know the real thing before you start dealing with some of the counterfeits. Here's what it says. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Colossians chapter 1. And of course, I could, chose, I could have chosen... Not 1 Colossians chapter... Alright. Just because I said you can ask, ask questions, that means you can do that. No, I'm just kidding. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter... I'm sorry. Uh, now you, y'all messed me up. You know that. I, I could have chosen a whole... We, we're going to spend our whole life learning about who Jesus is. So this is just one passage that reminds us truths about Jesus. And here's what Paul wrote for us. Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 13. We'll read through verse 18. It says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Thinking of God doing that through His Son Jesus, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Now, so what does this teach us about who Jesus is? The first thing it tells us is that he is Savior. He's a Redeemer. He's the Savior. He's the only hope for mankind, for a lost people. 
He's the only one that can give us hope for eternity. That, that we can know through him the forgiveness of sin and have the promise of eternal life. He is Savior. And he is, we understand I hope, that we, the Bible teaches clearly, he is the only Savior. And when we talk about him being Savior, I want to say this. Because he's Savior, no, nothing else or no one else has to be added in order for him to be our Savior. And that will become important in a little bit. That is, it's not Jesus plus my good works. It's not Jesus plus me keeping some church ordinances and, 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 and things. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's just Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. The Bible makes that very clear in many places. The second thing it talks about Jesus being here, it talks about that He is God. And he, again, elsewhere in the scripture, it makes it very clear that Jesus is God. He's not one of three gods. He's not one of many gods. He is the one and only God. Now again, we could talk about Trinity, and we'll probably talk more about that as we get into the Jehovah Witness in a few weeks, our view on Trinity. But we know, or we believe, that the Bible teaches a Trinitarian concept of who God is. Again, not three gods, but one God. A triune God. Okay? And, and so, when we talk about who Jesus is, Jesus is not a man, a, just a good man. And Jesus is not just an exalted man. And nor is Jesus someone who's just been infused with the Christ consciousness. Jesus is eternal God. And we know him to be the visible, how does it say here? He is the, the visible or the image of the invisible God. He's the, he is the one that, that man has been able to see. Because the Bible says no one has seen God and lived. He is the one that God allowed to come that we might see him. And remember what he said to his apostles in John chapter 14 when they said, Lord, if you would just show us the Father... That'd be enough for us. And what did he say? You remember what he said? Yeah, he said, Have I been with you so long, and you don't know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Paul's saying the same thing right here. Okay? He is God who came in the flesh, which again was different between the Mormon's God. Remember, the Mormon's God was a man who developed into being God. Jesus is eternal God who willingly took on the flesh of his own creation and came to be our Savior. All right. The next thing he said, Paul says about Jesus here is that he is the creator. Now how many of you just thought that God was a creator? How many just thought that the Father was a creator? That was his task. Jesus did other things. I know a lot of Christians that have that view. God the Father is a creator. Jesus is the Savior. And the Holy Spirit is sort of the feeling that you get when you're hanging around God. Okay? Alright? So, so when, you, when you think about, what does the Bible teach? Who is the creator? Is the Father the creator? Is the Son the creator? Is the Spirit the creator? I love you. You all get it. Yes! Yes! God is the creator. God the Father. You read about him creating. God the Son. Right here you read about him creating. And God the Holy Spirit. Okay? All of them, and I, my language messes me up. I just think I can't say it any, way, any other way than I can say it. All of them are God. They're the same God. And anything that God did, all the parts, I even hate that word parts, all the members of the Trinity are involved in. Who saved you? God, Jesus, God the Father, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit? Oh, who do you pray to? Oh, I'm going to get you now, you Baptist. Who do you pray to? 
<laughs> Alright? I like that. We sing that one song. Father, I adore you. I worship and adore you. Remember that song? Most Baptist church I've ever been, they do. Father, I love you. I praise you and adore you. Jesus, we love you. I praise you and adore you. And then... God, we love you and praise you. We leave someone out. Because someone might think someone's going to flip out and jump a pew or something like that. We don't say, Spirit, we love you and we praise you. We do here now, but, but it's interesting how we do that sometimes, you know. Alright, so who do you worship? You worship the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Yes. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Yes. Show you scripture for each one of those, easily. Okay? So Jesus is God. Okay? And Jesus is not only God, but Jesus is the creator. It says right here, everything that was made, he made. And there was nothing that was made that he did not make. And and notice here, he talks about the material world that we can see. He also talks about those principalities and powers, that spiritual world that we cannot even see. He made that too. Okay? Uh, The next thing that this teaches about Jesus is that he is preeminent. He is before all things. That term that he's the firstborn, uh, how does it say that? The firstborn uh, over all creation. That speaks of before creation ever. It's, a, it's, a, it's an idiom that speaks of, 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 of the fact that before anything was, he was. He's, he, is, he is preeminent over all things. Before anything existed, he did. And that's true only of God. In eternity past, before anything existed, God did. Where did God come from? God didn't come from anywhere. If God came from somewhere, that somewhere existed before God existed, not possible. Okay? So, He is preeminent. He is before all things. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That means before there was a beginning, He already was. Okay? Everybody got that picture? Okay, the next thing this teaches us, he teaches us here in verse 18, he said, and he is the what? He is the what? Well, we got to get this once again. He is the what? He is the head of the church. He is the head of the church. Who's the leader of this church? If it's not Jesus, we're in big, big, big trouble. He is the head of the church. The pastor is not the head of the church. The ministerial staff is not the head of the church. The deacon is not the head of the church. The elders are not the head of the church. And the people are not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Or it's not a biblical church. It really is just that simple. Now that sometimes rubs us the wrong way. Because we would rather have a, a, a Christ who is not quite as sovereign as the Bible teaches that he is. Because we think somehow we might be able to manipulate him to see our point of view. We have to be very careful of that. Jesus, don't you understand? You know what the answer to that, that is? Yes, he understands. Jesus, don't you know? Yes, he knows. Jesus, don't you see what's best? And that usually is followed by us telling him what's best. But we don't need to follow that up because the answer to that is, yes, he does know what's best. He is the head of the church. He's sovereign over all. And if your Jesus is not sovereign, if he's developing, if, he's, if he has to be responsive to your whims and your ways, uh, uh, then, then he's not the, the Jesus of the Bible. So as we look at what Paul reminds us about who Jesus is, these are the things in this passage, and these are the things I think you, you will see all throughout the scripture in dealing with who Jesus Christ is. 
Alright, so that sort of sets the basis of a biblical understanding. If you didn't have it, I know all of you already did. But a biblical understanding of who Jesus is. So now that brings us to the understanding, tying what the Mormon prophets and theologians have said about Jesus compared to what the Bible says about Jesus. And what we're doing here, this is comparative. You're going to compare these things, and you're going to see if they square. You know, I don't have any problem with things that square up. Do you? If it squares up, I say, praise God, it squares up. But let's be honest enough that if it doesn't square up, that we also acknowledge that, and not just say, well, that really doesn't matter. This matters hugely. Why? If they come to you offering any, any other gospel than that which you've received, let them be anathema. If they do not carry the doctrine of Christ, they have neither the Son or the Father. They cannot be saved. That's what he says. So now we begin looking at the first point in the message I want to share with you tonight. Let's look, first of all, at the, some of the Mormons' teaching concerning the identity of Christ. The identity of Christ. Well, first of all, what does the Bible say? Someone quote John 3.16. Y'all do that pretty rhythmically. You know that? Okay, so that's not bad. Alright. So what, is that, what does that verse teach us? Something that's very important as we deal with the identity of Christ in comparison to the Mormon doctrine. It may surprise some of you how they identify who Jesus Christ is and what they teach about who Jesus Christ is. You remember that we taught last week, or we learned last week that, that God the Father was once a man who became God and who established a planet that we are on. In the Mormon faith, they believe that God has many sons, many children. They believe the God of our planet is, is producing children, spirit children, even right now. And he had two preeminent sons. One named Jesus and one named Lucifer. It's an incredible teaching if you start looking at what it is. And so you could probably say this question is, is the could you have a Jesus who has a spirit brother named Lucifer and have the Jesus of the scripture? Well, let's go back to John 3.16 and, and see what the Bible says. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. What's that word begotten mean? Well, in, you need to understand, we, that comes in what we would call more archaic language. I'm not picking on the King James Version, but that's basically where we get that. Some of the newer translations will translate that so that you understand what it means. We don't use that word begotten anymore, only, except in the sense of, like, like even the Mormons have taken that, that, that term and, and said, See, you begat your own kind. So they are really talking about a system of procreation in which Jesus is the result of a literal physical relationship between Mary, the Virgin Mary, and God. Okay, That was the incredible miracle of what they would consider to be the, the incarnation. A special thing that God did. But it, 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 really gets, it really gets a little bit creepy when you start looking at some of the implications of that. But the word begotten doesn't mean that at all. Actually, the, the word begotten comes from the Greek, which means the, the Greek that we translate monogenes. 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 Okay? And it literally means this. One of a kind. 
that's why some of your new translation will say this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Because the Greek word means one of a kind. Unique. There's no other kind like Jesus. He is the only Son of God. He's the one and only Son of God. The Bible nowhere teaches that God has many sons, many children, in the sense of, in the same class as Jesus. It does not teach that, that we are the children of God in that class, but that we have been made the children of God as God has adopted us as his own children through the finished work of his son Jesus upon the cross. Everybody understand that? So when you read John 3, I know we quote it very well. When you read it, please understand what it's saying. It literally is saying that God has one and only Son, and His name is Jesus. He is uniquely the Son of God. He is the only Son of God. He's not one of many. He is the only Son of God. That's what that verse teaches us. It's a wonderful verse that we teach our kids, but it's so filled with so much wonderful truth uh, that sometimes we might bypass that. And again, what the problem with a lot of what I would say archaic lang- what, what I would say is archaic languages is it lends to a group using it in a way so often that the way they've been using it, even though it might be incorrect, becomes the definition of that word. Everybody got that? So begotten is one of those words where another word that does that is the word baptism. Okay, in the church, the word baptism has been used by the church for so long that pretty much across the board, it can mean whatever you want it to mean. We talk about the Roman Catholics in a few, 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 few weeks. Uh, what's the Roman Catholics believe about baptism? What about the mode? You don't. You very rarely. I don't know if you've ever seen a Roman Catholic that had been dunked in baptism. Even a, even the Jesus films that have a Roman Catholic back, background, they have Jesus going down in the Jordan River, then John reaching down, grabbing some water, and sprinkling him on the head. And when it says, they said, well, when he comes straight out of the water, that means they were saying he's just getting out of. The, he's getting out of the. He's getting out of the river. Thank you. That's what he's getting out of. Okay. The, ba- the word baptism is actually what's called a transliteration. The Greek word is baptizo. And rather than translating it, it became a transliteration, which means they took a Greek word and they created an, an English word out of it, which allows for different traditions to define it however they want to define it. But the word literally means immerse. You can't get away from that in the Greek. It means to immerse. Or to be two things, to immerse or to be completely identified with. Covered completely. Always covered completely. That's why when we say baptism of the Spirit, that's what it's talking about. Completely identified with God. So, when we look at at these words, please understand that, that, that some of these have taken on a life of their own and a definition of their own. So, let's look and let's see what the Mormon Church says about the identity of Christ. All right? Um, I think... I didn't copy them for up there, so I hope you have a copy of them. Are there enough there? Please, one per family. If we run out, we'll get more. Um, let me just read some of these things. And you just think about these things as I, as I read them, and you read along. So Joseph Smith taught that God is properly called Father. He is a glorified, exalted person. Remember we talked about that last week. With the personal attrib- attributes. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. Now, we don't have any problem with that, do we? Okay. 
He is not identical with God. We do have some problem with that, hopefully. But has become like the Father. This strips away the mystery of many classical creeds. This doctrine is redefined anthro... You know there is no way I can say that word. And most of you can't either. I just heard you. Okay? And it permeates ancient and modern scriptures. So what, what is he denying here? He's denying the Trinity is what he's denying here. He's denying the uniqueness of Christ. He's attacking the biblical identity of what, what we believe to be orthodox biblical teaching concerning who Jesus Christ is. And he's saying that this church does not hold to those teachings. See, it's one thing for me where you, you go to maybe an, an anti-Mormon website and they say, this church, the Mormon church does not hold to the, to the traditional orthodox teachings concerning Christ. You say, well, you can make that statement you don't like Mormon. They say it. Okay? They do not hold it. Let's read, read on. It says, The appointment of Jesus to be Savior of this world was contested by one of the other sons of God. He was called Lucifer, son of the morning, haughty, ambitious, and covetous of power and glory. The spirit brother of Jesus desperately tried to become the Savior of mankind. Quoting Orson Pratt. Goes on. Lucifer, our elder brother, who desired the glory for himself, stood up and proposed his own plan. And you can read uh, part of part of, that comes out of the out of one of the four major Mormon scriptures. Now, what are those four major scriptures? Somebody, give me one. That way, raise your hand because I can't hear five people at one time. One. Give me one. David. Pearl of Great Price is one. Book of Mormon is the second one. The King James Bible is the third. Although there is now a Joseph Smith translation. Okay? Which which likes to change up. Isn't it funny that both of them, we're talking about Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, they like to change up John 1.1. Why? Okay, what's the fourth one? Doctrine and Covenants. Covenants. Those are the four. When the Mormon missionaries come to your home, they will have this book that looks about that thick. It's actually those four books that they'll carry together. What I just read to you comes out of one of their holy books. That's an incredible statement. Lucifer, our elder brother. Why could they say that? Because of what we talked about last week. God is the father of all. God and, and Heavenly Mother are in heaven right now producing spirit children. And those spirit children ultimately uh, come into the bodies of physical children when human beings come together and procreate. Sound like something out of a mystery movie, but science fiction. David, please. Uh, I heard somebody talk about that one time and Somebody else brought up the point, like, if they're making spirit things up there, how do they have time to answer our prayers? I don't... <laughs> that are born on the planet. If it's a physical process, it just, it defies practicality. Yeah. But remember, their God, by definition, just like you said, just putting on that kind by definition, their God is limited. By definition, He's limited. Okay? And, and, and the goal for each man to go through all the process, we'll talk about this next week, about the temple ceremonies and stuff like that, is to ultimately attain their own position of godhood. 
And for each Mormon, good Mormon woman who's been married to her husband for, for time and eternity in the Mormon temple, for him to call her up on the day of resurrection. See, he has to call you up. I don't know how he does it. But this is serious stuff to Mormon ladies, folks. Because he, he is in complete control. He's going to be a god of his, own, of his own region, his own planet. And if he calls her up, then she can be the heavenly mother of that planet. Just like, and remember what we learned last week, Adam is our heavenly father on this planet. Okay? Let's read on. Who is it that is at the head of this? And he's talking about this idea. This challenge, if you will. Who is at the head? It is the devil, the mighty Lucifer, the great prince of angels, and the brother of Jesus. He left the providence. Uh, he left the province of his father and took with him a third part of the father's kingdom. And there was no other alternative but to banish him. God would have saved him if he could, but he could not. Now, if that is not a warped view of what happened in heaven, from the biblical perspective. Does everybody understand the biblical perspective of what happened to heaven? I don't need to go over that. If not, if it's just one or two, I can talk to you about it later. But, but uh, that's another one of the apostles. Okay? Alright, the next thing. Who will redeem the earth? Who will go forth and make a sacrifice for the earth and all things it contains? That's a question that's being done. Alright? The eldest son said, Here am I. And then he added, Send me. Now who's the eldest son? Jesus. Jesus is the eldest son in the Mormon faith. But the second son, or the second one, which was Lucifer, son of the morning, said, Lord, here am I. Send me. I will redeem every son and daughter of Adam and Eve that lives on the earth or that ever goes on the earth. Lucifer, the next one. Lucifer, the son of the morning, is our elder brother and the brother of Jesus. Now here's where we go to that begotten thing. He said, Jesus was the only begotten. Only he of all God's children had the physical inheritance in his body from God the Father. All other mortals have two mortal parents. And Satan and his followers never received their bodies at all. So, you can find a whole lot of other things about Jesus. I'm talking about his identity now. But clearly, what, you, what I share with you tonight would let you know that the identity, that's what we're talking about first of all, the identity of the Jesus of Mormonism does not square with the identity of the Jesus who's revealed in the scripture. Would you agree with that? So, can I ask you this? If you believe in the Jesus of Mormonism, if you put your faith in Jesus of Mormonism, is there any power to save? What does that tell you about people who believe in Jesus, uh, excuse me, in Mormon doctrine? It tells you this. They are lost. Okay? Why is that important for you to know? Because when you start want to get in this long debate and this discussion and this, and this argument with them and stuff, you need to remember you're talking to lost people. And the only thing that's going to give them light is what? The same thing to give you light. You've got to keep taking them back to Jesus, church. Taking them back to Jesus. You, you know, they're lost. They have no hope. And rather than that anger us, that ought to move us to a place of compassion, I think. That they need to hear the true gospel. 
You need to hear the true gospel. I really don't have that much of a problem in dealing with the, the individuals in the Mormon church. So like I told you last week, why are most Mormons Mormons? Because they're raised in the Mormon church, same way a lot of our kids. Um, but I, I'm always have a real problem with false teachers. I always have a real problem with, with false prophets. Because not it's like Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are you are the children of the devil. And you go around, you make all these proselytes to yourself, and you make them twice the son of the devil as you are. And Jesus had no tolerance for the false teachers and the false prophets. So, let's go on to the next thing in our outline. It said, Mormonism's teaching concerning the conception of Jesus, or Christ, differs from the Scripture. Well, let's look at what the Scripture says. If it differs, let's see what the Scripture says. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Someone read that, stand up and read it loud, and then someone stand up and read Luke 1.35. Loudly. Don't wait. Go ahead and do it. William, want to go ahead and do one? Oh, go ahead. Uh, Matthew one twenty. Go ahead. Uh, but when we had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Okay, thank you. From that, from that passage right there, do you see anything that has to do with what we understand to be procreation? Anything. I hope you don't. I hope you see a miracle that, is t- that took place in the conception of Jesus. Someone stand and read the, the Luke verse, please. Luke 1, um, 35. Somebody? Go ahead. The angel answered and said to her, Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Okay. So, Holy Spirit comes upon her. Now notice here, in the Matthew reference, God is, the angel of God is speaking to Joseph. In the Luke reference, the angel of God is speaking to Mary. The message is the same. It's consistent. Right? One of the things that Mormonism denies is that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and that's how she was impregnated. Okay? Remembering this, that they don't believe the doctrine of the Trinity. They do not hold the Holy Spirit in the same view as they hold God the Father. Or what they would actually call their Heavenly Father. Okay? So, the Bible makes it very clear. that, And, and someone says, well, how did it happen, Tony? And you know what my answer is? I have no idea. Never happened before, will never happen again. But here's what I do know. It's something that God can only do. And it has nothing to do with procreation as we understand procreation. Mary was a virgin before she was with child. And listen, Mary was a virgin when she was with child. That's only, only God can do something like that. Now, I know later on we'll be talking about was Mary a perpetual virgin all of her life. No, she wasn't. But that's another story. But we're talking about, in the Bible, you know, the Bible makes this very clear, where it says that Joseph took him to be his wife, and he knew her not until the baby had come. 
The Bible wants you to know that Jesus was, that, that, that Jesus was as, as the prophet Isaiah said, born of a virgin. Okay? He had no earthly parentage. You say, well, okay, will they have a problem with that? It's not just that, and they would say to you that Jesus had no earthly parentage. They would agree with that statement. The point is how the conception took place, and that's where it gets pretty sticky. So let's read and let's see what they say. All right, in your quotes and, and under outline point number three, Christ's conception, it says, Latter-day Saints believe that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. He was literally the Son of God, not the Son of Joseph, or even the Son of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And understand the implications of that. They deny what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit coming upon her. Because they deny that the Holy Spirit and God are one and the same. Okay? Next verse, uh, the next quote um, says, oh, by, by the way, that first quote comes out of Doctrine and Covenants again. Next quote from Brigham Young. When the time came that his firstborn, the Savior, should come into the world and take a tabernacle. What's a tabernacle? A body. Okay. The Father came himself and favored that spirit with a tabernacle instead of letting any other man do it. Okay, the implications of that, and particularly Brigham Young is very graphic about this, and it's not my intent to be graphic, but pretty much that there had to, there had to be a sexual union in order for there to be a body produced. The point, particularly Brigham Young's view of this, is that Jesus could not have a body, could not be human, unless there was a sexual union. Which again is contrary to the miracle of the incarnation and the virgin birth. There, next part, uh, the next one. The birth of the Savior was as natural as the birth of our chi- birth of our children. It was a result of natural actions. Do you understand the implications of what he said there? It was a result of natural action. He partook of flesh and blood. He was begotten of the Father. And remember, remember their definition of begotten. Okay? As we were of our fathers. Next thing. Mormon doctrine by, by one of the theologian Bruce McConkie. Here's what he said. There is nothing figurative about his per, uh, paternity. He was begotten, conceived, and born in a normal and natural course of events. Now that cuts it pretty fine because, but what we would say is, we would say, we would never say that he was begotten because remember you're using that begotten for how, how it originated. Not that he was one and only. So we would, we would never say that he originated or was he conceived in the natural course of events, would we? We would say that he was born in the natural course of events. We would say that he lived his life in the natural course of events, but never his origin, never his conception. It, it, it's an incredible attack at the very basis of who Jesus is and who God is. But remember that if you believe that God is a man, or even was once a man, this would make sense to you. I have given you a few leading items upon this subject, but a great deal more remains to be told. Now remember from this time forth and forever that Jesus was not the begotten of the Holy Ghost. Brigham Young. 
There is no act, no principle, no power belonging to deity that is not pure, purely, what's that word? Physiological. Which, philosophical, yeah. Philosophical. Okay? The birth of the Savior was as natural as are the births of our children. It was a result of natural action. He partook of flesh and blood and was begotten of the Father as we were of our fathers. Bring him young again. Christ was begotten of God. He was not born without the aid of man. And that man was... It's, it's really hard to get around these things. Right? Joseph Fielding Smith. Okay? Another one of the prophets. He goes on, he goes on to say in there, he said, he said, They tell us that the Book of Mormon states that Jesus was begotten, conceived of the Holy Spirit. I challenge that statement. The Book of Mormon teaches no such thing, neither does the Bible. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints proclaims that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the most literal sense. The body in which he performed his mission in the flesh was sired by the same holy being who worshipped as God. Our eternal Father, Jesus was not the Son of Joseph, nor was he the begotten of the Holy Spirit. He was the Son of the eternal God. That's Ezra Taft Benson, again, one of the prophets. It's not a small thing to say the word sired there. God the Father came down in his tabernacle of flesh and bone and had association with Mary and made her pregnant with Jesus. Can't get around that one. Okay? So, can I, can I, go ahead. Not being here last week, is that Adam then who is our God? Adam is the God of this planet. He's the one that came down to yeah. Mary? Yeah. But not as... Not as Adam. Not as Adam, but as, as, as Adam who developed, evolved into being God, who is continuing to evolve as God, but at, at, the, at the perfect time came down and had sexual relationship with Mary to produce Jesus. Okay? So let me, let me like I did with the first one, is the, is the teachings of the conception of Jesus, do they square with the teaching of the biblical conception of Jesus? So, if you have a Jesus who was, who was conceived by a so-called God who took on flesh and came down and had sexual relationships with Mary in order for her to be impregnated, do you have a Jesus of the Bible? And if you trust such a Jesus, do you have salvation? He can't be the same one. It is one of the basic fundamental truths of our faith when we talk about Jesus' conception. We, people have died over this doctrine of the virgin birth and the incarnation of Christ because it's crucial because if, 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 if Christ is not incarnate then, then we have no hope if he's not incarnate and if we don't have this miracle of his conception as recorded for us in the scripture then we're lost in our sins alright any questions or comments before we move on let's deal with the atonement Go ahead. Well, uh, this is kind of a not too important question, but in other words, do they hold the name of Adam so holy that they wouldn't dare uh, name a child a son after? No, oh, I don't know if that's true. No. I mean, I just was curious. No, I, I don't. I don't. No, I don't think we'd have trouble with doing that. Oh, okay. Because remember, in some ways, it's a very irreverent view of God. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, God is my daddy. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I understand when we talk about Abba, Father, and stuff, that's an intimate term there. But it's, but it's never meant to be an intimate term that shows disrespect and loss of awe of who God is. But when your God is nothing more than Adam, who was once a man, which means Adam somewhere, listen, to be consistent, which means somewhere Adam had to have a God over him. Adam was a man who had to have a God over him, and then he developed in a God to be the God of this world. And I don't know if his God transferred a title over to Adam. I don't, I mean, that's, some of that's too, too much for me to, to try to deal with. Okay? Alright, let's talk about the atonement. What is the atonement? When I say atonement, what does it, what's that mean to you? Something to pay for our sins. How we're saved, basically. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Here's what it said. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, why is that? That's such a one, one of my favorite scriptures. I like to add verse 1 too, but not for tonight. But love that scripture. Who for the joy that was set before him endured what? The cross. But once he had endured the cross, what does it say that he did? He sat down where? At the right hand of the Father. Why? Because the atonement was done. Nothing. What did he say upon the cross? When it was done, what did he say? It is accomplished. It is finished. It has been paid for. All those are good translations of that. It has been taken. The atonement has been met. And here in Hebrews, if you ever study the book of Hebrews, one thing that Hebrews does is it, says, it shows us over and over again that Jesus is greater than anything else. It talks about the prophets. Jesus is greater than prophets. It talks about the angels. Jesus is greater than the angels. It talks about the law. Jesus is greater than the law. It says that in Jesus we have everything. And here again he reminds us that Jesus has completed the work of atonement. You know why you can say... If you are genuinely born again, that you are born again, and that you have eternal life. You know why you can say that? Because Jesus has completed the work of atonement. If it's not done, you can't make such a claim. And if you could add anything to it or take anything away from it, again, you cannot make a claim of eternal security. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that his work upon the cross is a complete work. Everything has been done by Jesus. All right, well, let's, look at, let's see what some of the Mormon statements are. We're a little bit over seven, so I'm going to try to go through these a little bit quicker. Said, when the plan for our salvation was presented to us in the spirit world, we were so happy that we shouted for joy. We understood that we, we would have to leave our heavenly home for a time. We would not have, we would not have to live in the presence of our heavenly parents. Uh, excuse me, we would not live in the presence of our heavenly parents. While we were away from them, all of us would sin and some would lose our way. Our heavenly Father knew and loved each one of us. Each of us. He knew we would, we, we would need help. So He planned a way to help us. We needed a Savior to pay for our sins and teach us how to return to our heavenly Father. Our Father said, Whom shall I send? Two of our brothers offered to help. Our oldest brother, Jesus Christ who was then called Jehovah, said, Here am I, send me. Jesus was willing to come to the earth, give of his life for us, and take upon himself our sins. He, like our Heavenly Father, wanted us to choose whether we would obey Heavenly Father's commandments. He knew we, we must be free to choose in order to prove ourselves worthy of exaltation. Jesus said, Father, thy will be done, and the glory... And, 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 and the glory be thine forever. 
Now, what did I just read to you? There are some references there that you find in the Doctrine and Covenants. What I read to you is, is, is and I didn't, I'm sorry I didn't put the quotation, I need to put that quotation there. This is a, this is a teaching at the Mormon conference by their prophet that, that said, it's, it's, it's a teaching of what happened. Sometime in the pretty fast. Now, who are the we there? Well, the we are human beings. And we had to leave the heavenly home for our, of our Heavenly Father for a while, but our Heavenly Father knew that some of us would sin. So our Heavenly Father had to come up with an idea for we who sin. And again, we go back to what we looked at before. The two brothers, Jesus and Lucifer, said, I'll go. The Father said, Jesus, I choose you. And in doing that, he was saying to Lucifer, I don't choose you. Lucifer is so upset that God did not choose him that he rebels in heaven. And he leads as many as one-third of God's children, not just the angels, but of God's children, into rebellion against the Heavenly Father. And for that, he's condemned. That's the story. That's their idea of atonement and the need for atonement. We read on. Satan, who was called Lucifer, also came saying, Behold, here am I, send me. I will be thy son, and I will redeem all mankind. Uh, Satan wanted to force us, uh, excuse me, I will redeem all mankind, that one soul should not be lost, and surely I will do it, wherefore, wherefore give me thine honor. Satan wanted to force us to do his will, under his plan, we would not be allowed to choose. He would take away the freedom of choice that our Father had given us. Satan wanted to have all the honor of our salvation. That is why God did not choose him, from their view. And that is selected passage, that whole first part passage is from the, from the Pearl of Great Price. Well, let's look at three more quotes and then I'll close out tonight. There is not a man or woman who violates the covenants made with their God that will not be required to pay the debt. You got that? You understand the implication of what I just read? The blood of Jesus will never wipe that out. Your own blood must atone for it. Brigham Young's teaching on what's called blood atonement. Not talking about Jesus' blood, talking about your own blood. Okay? I'm glad you moaned on that one. That's that's a big one right there. Alright? Read on. And he that confesseth not that Jesus has come in the flesh and sent Joseph Smith with all the fullness of the gospel in his generation is not of God, but is Antichrist. And by the way, that's gonna sound that's that should sound very familiar to you. Remember we studied Islam? That there's only one God and his name is Allah and he has one prophet and that prophet's name is Muhammad. And you must believe that. Okay? And here you have that God sent his son Jesus, but not only Jesus, but that Joseph Smith was his prophet and you must believe both or you're anti-Christ. Alright, last one. The atonement included his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane as well as his suffering on the cross. That make any, that touch you anywhere? The Bible says it's on the cross. It's on the cross. It's very interesting to me that some of the what I would call the, the neo-religious groups, the neo-evangelicals have sort of turned it over. They, they, they say Jesus suffered on the cross and then he suffered three days in hell. 
By the way, they're just as apostate as what this is. Jesus didn't suffer three days in hell. Jesus suffered on the cross, and the atonement was accomplished on the cross. Not in the Garden of Gethsemane, and not in hell. But you'll have, you'll have people like Copeland and Hagen and, and uh, even that, that lady that many of you like. What's her name? Joyce, Joyce Myers. Dude, just, just give, you want my dander up? Let me get my dander up by, by quoting her on your Facebook and you'll get my dander up. You say, well, she's, she's, a, she's listen, she teaches a born again Jesus. She teaches that Jesus suffered on the cross and he was drugged into hell and there he was tortured and he died in hell and he was the firstborn in hell from the dead. That's apostate. And that's not even Mormonism. But Mormonism teaches... Getting back to Mormonism, we'll deal with the other one maybe someday. (laughs) Mormonism teaches... That Jesus suffered in Gethsemane. You know, we know that, that he suffered in Gethsemane in the sense that, that he was in agony in Gethsemane, right? But agony for what? For the cross he was going to face. But the atonement was done on the cross. So if they believe that Adam achieved God and that's without the Father, what do they do with Satan? They, they well, yeah, I... I don't know what I mean. I don't know of any. I've never read anything what to do with Cain and Abel, but Cain and Abel would fall in the same category as the rest of us. You know, there's no record of what happens to the rest. of This record we have to the Book of Mormon is the God of this age. But remember what Mormonism teaches. Mormonism teaches that, and what, what's he say in this one verse that we might be that we might be what exalted. Uh, what's that word that I was looking for there? Okay, I, I lost it. But, but what, it, what it talks about, you and I being exalted. And that's, that's, the, that's the goal of Mormonism. And so let's say you're, you two are good Mormons. And you do everything right and you're exalted. You go to the highest heaven and you're given your own planet. Well, we're not... We're not well, he is. He's going to drag you along. He told me he would. Okay? Um, the point is, we're not going to read about you guys. Because you're not our God. So what happened to, to Cain and Abel? Who knows? But if they did move to the place of exaltation, then they're, according to Mormon doctrine, they're God somewhere, and their planet is reading about them. You see what I'm saying? And that's the goal of Mormonism, that, we, that, that all of us do that. Or, or the good Mormons do. Yes? Uh, yes. That whole first part is that. Do they take different prophets, the prophets and all the teachings, and does this add to be the Book of Mormon? No. Most of the the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrine of Covenants are, are further revelations after the Book of Mormon. The initial book, and I'll talk a little bit about this next week, but let me I'll just share. The initial book, of course, is the King James Bible, which, by the way, Joseph Smith did not mind plagiarizing when he wrote the Book of Mormon. Okay? But supposedly, if you get your hand on a Book of Mormon, and I, did I return yours, David, or did, did it get lost? Okay. Uh, 
if you read the, the, the funniest thing, I don't know what the new ones are like, but the old Book of Mormon had this thing that at the beginning, introductory page, it said, God came to our father Joseph, and our, our prophet Joseph, and nobody knew that God came to Joseph, and nobody knew what God told Joseph, but God told Joseph all the things that you'll find in this Book of Mormon. And then the next page has this list of people that testify that God actually came to Joseph. Well, the first page says that nobody knows and nobody saw it, and then you have all these witnesses, supposedly, that saw it. I mean, there's a lot, particularly in the early writings of the Book of Mormon, where there's so much contradictory there. It's just not, it's not even well written. One of those early Book of Mormon, and, and, and it has been revised over and over and over again. So the one you get today has been, I mean, it's gone, to, gone through with a fine-tooth comb to get almost all those things out of it. Which is not the same as the Bible. You know that, don't you? We want to, think about this with the Bible, we want to go back to the earliest manuscripts we can find. That reveals that the latest translation we have are pure, right? Where Mormons don't want to do that. They don't want to go back to the original writings because the original writings are so contradictory they won't hold up. We'll talk some more about that about that next week. But but yeah, the Book of Mormon actually is the book that supposedly the angel Moroni gave Joseph through finding some sort of Egyptian hieroglyphic reformed Egyptian hieroglyphic. It's just mystical. It really is. Okay. All right. So next week we'll talk about any other questions about about Jesus. So we close with this thought once again. As you learn about these things, these three important things, the identity of Christ, the conception of Christ, and the atoning work of Christ, does the Bible, or does the Book of Mormon, or does the Mormon doctrine square with what the Bible says? And if you say no, then you must also realize that the Jesus of, of Mormonism is not the Jesus of the Bible. And any Jesus other than the Jesus does not have the ability to save. And remember in Matthew chapter 24? Jesus talked about in the last days that there will be many messiahs. There will be many Jesuses who will come along and say that they're the one. And what's he say? He said, he said don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. So when you, when you meet the, those Mormon friends or you run into Mormon people, remember, you are talking to a lost person. They need Jesus. Okay? Pray for the opportunity to be able to share with them Jesus. Gospel can set them free just like it set us free. Alright. We're going to close now. Some of you have kids and I bet they're having fun over there with them. So, Alright, let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for the opportunity of this evening. And Lord, I pray that, that, that there's a benefit to this. And, and the benefit, Lord, I, I always pray. It's not just so we can talk about how much right righter we are than more right than, than these other groups. That's not the issue. And Father, I pray that we never approach this that this would be a put down to any other faith group. But an understanding. We talked, Lord, last week of how important truth is and how we evaluate all things according to your truth. And we hold on, as Paul said, to that which is good. So, Lord, give us that kind of faith. And give us your heart for the lost people in whatever faith group they're in. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen.